This is Radio Orbit, exploring the secrets of everything on KOPN 89.5 FM, Columbia. Good morning to you, good afternoon, good day, whatever it might be, whatever you happen to be tuning into this program. But for most people here in the mid-Missouri area, it is good evening or good night. It's 5 after 11 p.m. on the 9th of May, and this is Radio Orbit on KOPN 89.5 FM, mid-Missouri source for in-depth news, diverse talk, music of the world, more than radio it's listener-sponsored community radio, and you're listening to it right here, right now on KOPN 
serving Columbia, Glasgow, Lupus, Rochport, Kingdom City, Jeff City, Mexico, Elm Tree, lots of other places around mid-Missouri. So here we go. My name is Mike Hagan, and I'm your host every week on Radio Orbit Monday nights from 11 until 2. And uh, we've been doing the show on Monday nights now for a few weeks, six or seven weeks now. I think this is maybe the seventh program uh, that we've done on Monday nights and uh, really enjoying the new time slot. I hope uh, hope you guys are enjoying it, too. A big thanks to uh, Debbie. Another great episode of Free Range Radio Theater. Really cool stuff uh, presented tonight, and I look forward to hearing more of that series. Gotta love the... Uh, the Tesla references that we had uh, 20 minutes ago or so, huh? Cool stuff, uh, and it's coming at us from all angles now. Whether it's on this program or whether it's on radio theater or whether it's on the web or whatever. So, anyway, okay, this is Mike, and uh, let's get on with things here. I was going to actually uh, air an interview tonight with Dr. Carlos Castro, and I'm not going to. I, so I don't have ho- sort of a whole lot of planning uh, that, that was done for this program tonight. Uh, the truth of the matter is that I was away uh, for the weekend. I went up to visit my mom for Mother's Day up in Rockford, Illinois. And I didn't get the interview that I was going to air edited in time. Uh, so... Um, I decided that I would do something else. So I'm sort of going to do like a Mother's Day special thing, I decided. And uh, like I said, I didn't plan, uh, put a whole lot of planning into it, but it'll be cool. And I hope you guys will uh, enjoy it. I'll, um, maybe we'll have some open lines a little bit later, see how that goes, depending on how we are with time. Um, I've got a piece by Joseph Campbell that I think that I'm probably going to air with regard to the Mother's Day uh, theme. And... Well, I'm, I'm, I'm just not sure where else we're going to go with that, but I've got a lot of things to talk about, so we'll have no problem filling up the next two hours and 50 minutes, okay? All right, thanks to everybody uh, listening over the web. Thanks for the email and uh, the other communication that I get from you all out there. I appreciate it. Uh, for anybody listening to the program, I welcome your questions and comments, concerns, ideas, uh, thoughts, Whatever. And you can always send those to me at orbitradio, O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O, at AOL.com. That's orbitradio at AOL.com. And you can get to me directly from the web as well at www.radioorbit.com, R-A-D-I-O-R-B-I-T.com, just one O in the middle there. And, of course, here at the station, KOPN 915 East Broadway, in downtown Columbia, Missouri, 65201. And the phone numbers here, I'm going to give these out because maybe we'll take a couple calls later. So you can write these down if you want. Uh, but uh, the number here in the studio, if you want to get on the air, is area code 573-443-8255. We may take some open, uh, uh, open the phones up a little bit later and take some calls. So 
write that down if you're interested in talking about something. 443-8255. Uh, you can also call in 443-7380 and get in uh, on the air. If you just want to call me in the studio during a break or during some music or something like that, you can call it 573-874-5676 or 1-800-895-5676, okay? Okay, um... Let's see. Uh, like I said, we're going to do the Mother's Day thing tonight, and I have, well, let me mention a couple things first. Uh, Carlos Castro, we'll do that interview in a couple weeks now. I wanted to do it tonight, but like I said, I didn't get the interview edited in time, so uh, this is better anyway because I need to do sort of a Mother's Day thing tonight. I think it's deserving of some recognition, so we'll do that. And then next week is Barbara Tedlock. Dr. Barbara Tedlock, a show that I'm really interested in and uh, very excited about, and I'll tell you about more, that, uh, more about that in a minute. And the following weekend, I think, is going to be Nassim Haramine from the Resonance Project, and he's a really, really interesting guy as well. Um, after that, uh, I'm not going to mention too much more about upcoming guests. Things are kind of dynamic right now and changing a lot, but we've got uh, Ed Edwards' shoe coming up and uh, John Lash and some other people, but we won't... I concentrate too much on that stuff anymore. I don't think we'll just give you a week or two out, so you know. And I'm going to try to start uh, putting this stuff up on the web as well, so I can maybe um, uh, post the information about uh, an upcoming guest. If I can go out a couple, three weeks and connect links up to that information, then it's possible that the people that are listening uh, to the program can go to the websites beforehand, perhaps, and brush up a little bit and get familiar with some of the information, perhaps, that uh, that I'll be talking to with any particular guest when I have them on the show. So, anyway, um, I'll be trying to do uh, some improvements on the website soon. I've had a lot of people asking me, can you put up a links page? I've had people ask me, can I put up the um, uh, song list and links to the bands of music that I play on the show and things like that. So all that stuff takes time, and, I, and uh, I'd love to do it, and I'm going to do it, but uh, I do this all by, my, by myself, and I'm not uh, looking for sympathy or anything, but it just takes a while to do this stuff, so all right? But anyway, uh, I'm definitely into it, and I'm going to uh, keep trying to improve uh, all of the interfaces between you and I because that's what this uh, program is about. It's about interface and about uh, dissolution of boundaries and the breaking down of limitations and this sort of thing. And uh, that includes my own. And I've got mine just like you got yours. So uh, one of my limitations is I always start things and I uh, start lots of different things and I always uh, have a tendency to not finish them all. Rather than start a project and then finish it and then start another one, I'll start ten of them at the same time and then never finish any, uh, any of them. So, anyway, the website is no different than that, and I will have to try to improve my efforts, all right? Okay. Um, like I said, uh, Dr. Tedlock, Barbara Tedlock, uh, this is a show that's going to be on, and I'm going to give this a little bit of time right now because I think it's a really important program. And it's also Pledge Drive Week next week, and um, I'm actually, I didn't plan it this way. In fact, uh, Barbara was supposed to be on the show tonight uh, if we were uh, following our original plan, but anyway, uh, she has some things going on at the university um, uh, where she is the chair of the anthropology department up there at the State University of New York in Buffalo. At any rate, uh, she's involved with some stuff and couldn't get away this week, but she's going to get away next week, and she's driving through town, and she's actually going to be here uh, at the station in the studio with me next week, a week from tonight, and we're going to do obviously a live interview, but with uh, Dr. Tedlock actually physically here in Columbia in the studio with me. 
And I want to tell you a little bit about her and uh, what her story is. Uh, so you're familiar with uh, with what's going to happen next week. And the main reason that I'm doing this is for anybody who may be listening to the program tonight, I'm really trying to encourage uh, female listeners to listen to the program next week and to spread the word about this show and try to get as many girls, as many women, as many ladies, as many of the feminine persuasion as I can to listen to this show. And certainly all the men obviously welcome to listen to it too, but I think it's a show that uh, that that will be a real groundbreaker uh, in the eyes of a lot of women out there in this community. So um, I'm encouraging all you girls out there to tell your friends and uh, you guys out there to tell your girlfriends as well uh, to try to listen to the show uh, next Monday night at 11 o'clock. I'll have uh, Dr. Barbara Tedlock uh, live in the studio here with me for the full three hours, we'll probably do a two and a half hour interview or so. And, and I won't do too much of the pledge drive thing. Uh, I, I promise uh, I'll pitch it up front and I know, um, uh, that uh, it has to be done, and I want your support. And I'll tell you right now that I'm hoping that some of my listeners out there will um, uh, will pledge uh, some of their own hard-earned money to help keep Radio Orbit on the air and uh, to show that you appreciate uh, the opportunity to get the sort of information that I bring to you every week and that KOPN uh, brings to you every week. So, uh, so anyway, that's coming next week, and uh, Dr. Barbara Tedlock uh, will be with me in the studio. Anyway, so let me tell you a little bit about Barbara here, and um, uh, you can get a feel for uh, perhaps what uh, um, what we're going to talk about next week. Okay, all right, uh, Barbara. Uh, this is uh, this is a clip from uh, the University of Buffalo Reporter. Okay, and this is just sort of a uh, sort of a little personal interest piece about Barbara. As a child in Saskatchewan, anthropologist Barbara Tedlock first learned from her, from her Ojibwa Cree grandmother about storytelling, massage, dream prophecy, and the fruits, flowers, twigs, and roots used to make strange and mysterious healing concoctions. Her grandmother told her about native shapeshifters who changed into deer, clouds, beavers, and willow trees, and about witches called bear walkers who traveled at night inside glowing balls of light that commonly are seen in shamanic rituals in many cultures. She explained to her, Tedlock, write, Tedlock writes in her book, that our thoughts and emotions overlap and intermingle, and that this mixing of head and heart connects us to future events hidden in the dark womb of time. As a doctoral student in cultural anthropology conducting research in the Guatemalan highlands, Tedlock along with her husband, anthropologist and State University of New York, distinguished professor Te uh, Dennis Tedlock. Uh, she was initiated into a Mayan shamanic tradition by Don Andres and Dona Talin, local Mayan healers. Gradually, she recalls, we learned to enter and control our dreams in a kind of alert sleeping and to share and interpret and complete those dreams together. We studied astronomy, hands-on healing and herbalism, we learned to recognize different kinds of shrines and to pray correctly, to gather flowers and incense, calculate the Mayan calendar, which was critical for divination, and to embrace casual but meaningful coincidences of inner and outer events, thus transcending and improving our emotional and intuitive selves, she says. Don Andres taught us about the vital energy that suffices the material universe 
He trained us in bodily awareness and emotional attunement, how to recognize the lightning in the body and the speaking of the blood, manifestations of our own connection with the cosmos. In this way, we would be able to increase our energy and use it to heal others and ourselves. From my grandmother's care and the work of Don Andre and Don Italian, she says, I've seen firsthand the effectiveness of shamanic healing. So that's a little bit about uh, Dr. Barbara Tedlock, and uh, her story is an amazing one. She had polio as a child. She was cured uh, not by Western medicine, but by her grandmother, uh, a, Canadian, uh, a Canadian native indigenous female feminine healer. And uh, she carries on that tradition. Uh, but Barbara is one of these people that balances in both worlds. She holds a Ph.D. in anthropology. She is the chair of the anthropology department at the State University of New York in Buffalo. Her husband is also an initiated shaman, but also a distinguished professor at the same university. And they are highly experienced and highly educated people. And this is another part of the balance. You can read lots and lots of books, but there is no substitute for experience. And uh, that is one of the... Uh, one of the most important points about the shamanic tradition that I always emphasize is that uh, a big part of it is based upon experience. Experience what happens to the self, not what you're told happens or what you read happens. So anyway, Dr. Tedlock will be with me next week, and I look very forward to that. And uh, uh, she's written a book that is called The Woman in the Shaman's Body, Recovering the feminine in medicine and religion and uh, again it's a program uh, and a bunch of ideas that I think will benefit every woman who's out there all right uh, speaking of women who are out there I want to do I think we'll do space weather in a little while we'll probably do that um, after I do this Mother's Day thing that I want to do and we've been talking about Barbara, and she's very interested in the feminine and the and the return of the feminine in, in areas of uh, what have been uh, patriarchal uh, institutions and hierarchies for a long, long time. And uh, Mother's Day is um, something that fits right in with uh, with what Barbara talks about. So let's let's talk about that a little bit. I said I was up in Rockford uh, to visit my own mom. Uh, just a few days ago, and that was cool. I hadn't seen her for a while, and she's uh, getting up there in age. And I appreciate uh, her, and I appreciate all the mothers. So I'm going to read a little piece here that was written a long time ago in 1872. Uh, it is, uh, was titled A Mother's Day Proclamation. and was written by Julia Ward Howe. And... Um, Julia Ward Howe was sort of the originator of Mother's Day. Uh, the tradition began back in 1872 when Ms. Howe wrote this uh, piece that I'm going to read to you right now. She was, by the way, the lyricist uh, for the Battle Hymn of the Republic, ironically. Uh, she wrote the words to that famous hymn. and uh, But she also decided that there should be a day to celebrate peace and motherhood. And she wrote 
this with that in mind, and I read it today uh, with the same. A Mother's Day Proclamation by Julia Ward Howe, written in 1872. Arise then, women of this day, arise, all women who have hearts, whether your baptism be of water or of tears. Say firmly, we will not have questions answered by irrelevant agencies. Our husbands will not come to us reeking with carnage for caresses and applause. Our sons shall not be taken from us to unlearn all that we have been able to teach them of charity, mercy, and patience. We, the women of one country, will be too tender of those of another country to allow our sons to be trained to injure theirs. From the voice of a devastated earth, a voice goes up with our own. It says, disarm, disarm. The sword of murder is not the balance of justice. Blood does not wipe our dishonor. Our violence indicate possession. As men have often forsaken the plow and the anvil at the summons of war, let women now leave all that may be left of home for a great and earnest day of counsel. Let them meet first as women to bewail and commemorate the dead. Let them solemnly take counsel with each other as to the means whereby the great human family can live in peace, each bearing after his own time the sacred impress, not of Caesar, but of God. In the name of womanhood and humanity, I earnestly ask that a general congress of women without limit of nationality may be appointed and held at some place deemed most convenient and at the earliest period consistent with its objects to promote the alliance of the different nationalities, the amicable settlement of international questions, the great and general interests of peace. A wonderful piece uh, there. Again, uh, written some 133 years ago by Julia Ward Howe, and I thank my friend Bob for sending that to me, and I'm glad I was able to share it with you tonight. This is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN 89.5 FM. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Happy Mother's Day to all of you out there. Should I build? Should I run for 
That was Mother, a uh, wonderful guest performance of Sinead O'Connor performing with the Bleeding Heart Band, Roger Waters, and a whole slew of other people. Uh, it was an event that happened in 1990 in Berlin at Brandenburger Tour, uh, a place of note uh, for anyone who was interested in the history of the Cold War. Uh, this was where Checkpoint Charlie was and uh, a place in the middle of Berlin where you would cross from the west to the east and vice versa if you were lucky. And uh, at any rate, uh, in October of 1989, the Berlin Wall came down and uh, was destroyed, overrun. And it was the effective end for all practical purposes uh, uh, to the Union of Soviet Socialist Republic, the USSR, Russia as we knew it, uh, ceased to exist pretty much on that day, October 3rd, 1989. And uh, um, a lot of things have changed uh, in global geopolitics since then. Russia uh, now sort of Reconglomerating, uh, sort of uh, putting together uh, a organization of states, um, or trying to at least uh, to sort of reassemble the old Soviet Union, but uh, in a world that is much much different uh, these days. But at any rate, at any rate, I was in uh, Germany at the time I was living there, and I was living in Bavaria, working for the Department of Defense, the United States uh, DoD as a civilian, uh, but at any rate, I was DOD at the time, and um, I happened to have uh, some, to uh, some time in July of 1990 when Roger Waters organized this incredible concert uh, that was held at the Wall at Brandenburger Tour uh, in Berlin on, uh, I think it was July 21st, uh, let's see, when was it? Yep, uh, July 21st, 1990. And uh, there was a whole bunch of uh, guest musicians that he had performed with him. And I won't even begin to list them. Sinead O'Connor, obviously one of them, and she performed uh, that song, Mother. And it was a tremendous performance and something that I was lucky enough to witness. And um, anyway, I just thought I'd, uh, I'd share it with you guys tonight. It was a, uh, an appropriate piece for the, uh, for the theme of the show tonight. So once again, happy Mother's Day to everybody out there, and uh, I hope you had a wonderful day, and I hope that uh, the year is a good one for you. All right, All right let's do space weather real fast, and um, what do we want to talk about here? Well, the sun has uh, been going through a pretty interesting thing lately. There, there have been, there have been, there's been a pretty significant solar wind that's been kicking up the auroras but there's a there's a group of sunspots that's been identified as sunspot uh, number 758 and uh it's sort of just now approaching the 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 uh the earth the earth centered part of the of the solar disk sort of just coming up from the eastern limb and rotating around now and it's sort of facing the planet 
right now, and it's a real big group of sunspots. It's not one big one, but it's a whole bunch of them, and they're all sort of grouped together and floating around and morphing within one another, and it's a real dynamic thing, and all kinds of weird mag- magnetic phenomena are being seen uh, from this particular group of sunspots, and they've uh, they've been the cause of a couple of pretty good-sized flares over the last few days, and nothing really significant, uh, but um, uh, but have sped up the, sp- the the solar wind significantly that have given us some great auroras over the last few days. But at any rate, uh, it's something to watch, and it's sort of just a strange one. You don't see that uh, uh, very often, and they're sort of scattered over a vast area, but there's a whole bunch of sunspots and a couple of real big ones that are mixed in there with them. So we'll keep our eye on that, and um, you can... Uh, uh, check in here next week or go to the web at www.cyberspaceorbit.com and uh, always get an update on what's happening on the sun there along with lots of other interesting things. And let's see, um, uh, we are now approaching what is called solar minimum. And uh, this is according to solar fo- forecasters, but of course it doesn't mean that solar activity will stop. Um, there uh, is an article in Space Weather uh, today about uh, this sort of mythology that uh, that solar activity stops at the solar minimums. Well, it does, and it's just uh, significantly significantly reduced. However, uh, I've argued on this program, and I think with uh, with good reason and with with good evidence behind it, that uh, that the solar cycles that we're typically witnessing um, over the last uh, a few hundred years, these 11-year cycles are also cycles within larger cycles because things have happened in the last five years uh, since a, a supposed solar maximum uh, that have been unprecedented. And they don't mention that uh, much about that in this article. But at any rate, there's always the potential for significant solar activity regardless of what part of the cycle it's in. And uh, I appreciate the fact that they recognize this, uh, uh, this point at least. All right. Um, Potentially hazardous asteroids or near-Earth objects. There are three uh, asteroids that are going to come within a few lunar distances of the planet within the next uh, seven or eight days or so. Uh, uh, None of them are getting too close, uh, but anytime they start to get uh, inside of a million miles or so, uh, sort of anything can happen. You have to imagine that uh, the, uh, the cosmos out there, the universe that our planet is speeding through right now, moving at the speed of who knows what, the speed of light. That's what they tell us, that the universe is expanding at the speed of light, right? So that means that everything should be expanding at that rate. So that means that, relatively speaking, we're all moving at the speed of light. So anyway... Uh, Think about that for a few minutes, all right? But at any rate, uh, the Earth is moving through a different part of space all the time. And uh, as we clock the orbits and uh, uh, try to um, map the orbits and the orbital characteristics of all of these objects that we discover that are flying around out there, we have to understand that it is a dynamic situation. And... and, uh, the objects are affected by all these other objects, and they can encounter other objects along the way. 
And unless we're watching every move they make, we really have no way of knowing what happens between point A and point B. So things like uh, uh, adjustments of orbits can occur and, uh, or perturbations, as uh, it's spoken about in the, in the uh, astronomical tongue. But at any rate, uh, we live in a dynamic, dynamic cosmos. Uh, we live in a pinball game of sorts with lots of balls that are all flying around and every once in a while they hit other balls and knock them for a loop and send them off on another way and then they may in turn interact with others and sometimes they hit one another and completely shatter and send smaller balls uh, hurtling throughout space uh, to do the same thing. It's this fractal dance of uh, kaleidoscopic beauty that's actually uh, so sophisticated and complicated that uh, it's absolutely outrageous when you start to think about it. But at the same time, when you look at the, uh, the nature of chaos, which is what we're told this is, uh, chaos theory is showing us and has shown us now that inside of all of this uh, seeming randomness is order, embedded order upon embedded order. Beautiful, beautiful fractal uh, representations of order. So it's an amazing place that we live in and a dynamic one and uh, there are things happening all the time. So uh, again, these near-earth objects, these potentially hazardous asteroids are simply uh, uh, rocks that are flying around out there in space that we know about, that we happen to have calculated their orbits, and we can say, hey, okay, that's what this is, this is where it is, this is where it's going to be when it uh, approaches the planet, and it's going to be X uh, uh, number of miles from the planet when that happens, and they can do that with X uh, percent of error, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. It's possible, blah, blah, blah. But uh, there are many, many um, unknowns out there as well. And the unknown is always the, uh, the question mark, not the known. And we like to make ourselves feel better with the known and uh, without um, usually considering that the unknown is much more interesting and much more uh, uh, potentially um, important to our own situation so anyway so that's space weather again the sun uh, pretty mellow right now although this weird sunspot area kind of spinning around and we'll keep our eye on that but uh, yeah things have been pretty quiet on the sun for the last few months and uh, that's nice to know okay and we've got summer coming up here so uh, we don't need any uh, any real real big uh, solar activity to help spark all this weather activity that we see sometimes in the spring and summer with tornadoes and all these other things that happen down here in Missouri so all right um I've got one more thing, I think, that I think I'm going to read uh, to you. I think I'm going to do one more thing for Mother's Day here. And not really for Mother's Day. I guess it is sort of for Mother's Day because it fits in with that theme, but it also fits in with space, with space weather. And it'll, it's also just something that I want to do. So. so I will read it to you, and I'm in sort of a poetry uh, sort of mood, so I'm going to read some, uh, some Emerson, some Ralph Waldo Emerson for you here in a second. All right, this is... Um, Mike Hagan, and you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN. 
and I do this every Monday from uh, 11 until 2. I had a uh, I had a listener uh, tell me that I don't identify the show often enough during the show and tell people what they're listening to. So I'm going to try to do that a little bit more often. So don't get frustrated if I mention that uh, once in a while because it, it was just a request. Okay. So anyway, Radio Orbit KOPN 11 to 2 every Monday. My name is Mike. All right. Uh, this is called Celestial Love. It's by Ralph Waldo Emerson, and it's uh, something again that goes out to uh, to all the moms out there, and also all the people with the with heart. Okay. Higher far upward into the pure realm, over sun or star, over the flickering daemon film, thou must mount for love into vision, which all form and only one form dissolves, in a region where the wheel on which all beings ride visibly revolves, where the starred eternal worm girds the world with bound and term, where unlike things are like, when good and ill and joy and moan melt into one. There are past, present, future. Shoot triple blossoms from one root. Substances at base divided in their summits are united. There the holy essence rolls, one through separated souls, and the sunny aeon sleeps, folding nature in its deeps, and every fair and every good, known in part or known in pure, to men below in their archetypes endure. The race of gods or those we erring own. Our shadows fitting up and down in the still abodes, the circles of that see our laws which publish and which hide the cause. Pray for a beam out of that sphere, thee to guide and to redeem. Oh, what a load of care and toil by lying use bestowed. From his shoulders falls, who sees the true astronomy, the period of peace, counsel, which the ages kept shall the well-born soul accept as the overhanging trees fills the lake with images as garment draws the garment's hem men their fortunes bring with them by right or wrong lands and goods go to the strong property will brutally draw still to the proprietor silver to silver creep and wind and kind to kind nor less the eternal poles of tendency distribute souls. There need no vows to bind. Warn not each other, seek but find. They give and take no pledge of oath. Nature is the bond of both. No prayer persuades, no flattery fawns. Their noble meanings, nor their pawns. Plain and cold is their address. Power have they for tenderness. And so thoroughly is known each other's purpose by his own. They can parley without meeting. Need is none of forms of greeting. They can well communicate in their innermost estate when each the other shall avoid, shall each by each be most enjoyed. Not with scarves or perfumed gloves do these celebrate their loves, not by jewels, feasts, and savors, not by ribbons or by favors, but by the sun spark on the sea and the cloud shadow on the lee. The soothing lapse of mom to murk and the cheerful round of work. Their chords of love so public are, they intertwine the farthest star, the throbbing sea, the quaking earth, yield sympathy, the signs of mirth. Is none so high, so mean, is none, but feels the seals, this union. 
even the fell, till furies are appeased. The good applaud, the lost are eased. Love's hearts are faithful, but not fond. Bound for the just, but not beyond. Not glad as the low-loving herd of self and others still preferred. But they have hardly designed the benefit of broad mankind. And they serve men austerely, after their own genius, clearly. Without a false humility, for this is love's nobility. Not to scatter bread and gold, goods and raiment bought and sold, but to hold to fast his simple sense and to speak the speech of innocence. And with hand and body and blood to make his bosom counsel good. For he that feeds men serveth few. He serves all who dares be true. That was Ralph Waldo Emerson on Radio Orbit KOPN. I'll be back in just a few minutes. This is Mike Hagan. We'll be back uh, after this. Toad the wet sprocket. I will not take these things for granted. One part of me just wants to tell you everything. One part just needs the quiet. Thank you. 
This is Mike, and you're listening to KOPN Radio Orbit, and it's uh, just a few minutes before midnight on uh, the 9th of May, soon to be the 10th, 2005. All right, a couple things uh, that hour for Mother's Day, and uh, we're going to do one more thing at the top of the hour uh, with regard to that whole theme, because I'm kind of getting into it now, and I really didn't have the show planned too much, but uh, as I'm going along here. It's working out okay. So I think I'm going to continue with what I had sort of uh, thought about uh, doing earlier and um, uh, you're welcome to stick around with me and I hope you all do. All right. uh, This is Mike, Radio Orbit on KOPN and we're going to do something at the top of the hour here uh, that is a, uh, well, it's an older, it's a piece of recorded material and I'm going to back away from the mic for a second here because I'm going to play another piece of music before I put that on. But uh, anyway, this is something from Joseph Campbell from ah, 1988, I want to say. Anyway, he did a series of interviews with Bill Moyers. 
and uh, there was one particular segment uh, that was recorded. There, there's there's a total of six hours uh, that was condensed down from a whole bunch of uh, uh, of raw footage that uh, that Moyers had. But at any rate, the one that I'm going to air for you guys tonight is called "Love and the Goddess." And again, with this sort of Mother's Day theme, uh, I think it's fitting, and I think it's something that everyone will appreciate. Um, uh, when they uh, when they hear it, so that's coming up in just a minute here. But let me get uh, um, let me get something else. Uh, oh, let me get something else on the CD player. I think uh, before then, just so I can get that set up and I can take a break myself and go get some water. And what are we gonna listen to? This is Heidi. Actually, it's Ruby, and the song is Heidi. But uh, I didn't want to mislead you and tell you that the name of the girl was Heidi and that the song was Ruby, which it's not. All right, this is Ruby, and this is Heidi. And this is Mike on KOPN 89.5 FM. Radio Orbit, back in a minute with Joseph Campbell and Bill Moyers, and uh, more good stuff after that. By the way, the number here is uh, 573-874-5676 or 1-800-895-5676. Give me a call. I'll have, about, uh, I'll have a little time here to chat on the phone. Okay, thanks.
Yeah. That's Ruby from Salt Peter. That's called Heidi. And this is Mike on Radio Orbit, KOPN, 89.5 FM, Mid-Missouri Source for in-depth news, diverse talk, music of the world. It's more than radio. It's listener-sponsored community radio. And you're listening to it here right now, your imagination station, Radio Orbit, KOPN. All right, uh, we're going to do a recorded piece here from 1988, I think it was, uh, maybe maybe 89 when it was actually released. But at any rate, uh, Bill Moyers, uh, over two summers during the last two years, actually, of Joseph Campbell's life, uh, recorded a series of interviews at... Uh, George Lucas's Skywalker Ranch out in California, and uh, there is a six-CD collection uh, that was originally re uh, released on videotape on PBS many years ago, and uh, there uh, is a tremendous amount of really cool stuff uh, hidden inside of this particular presentation. So uh, tonight I'm going to give you a little taste of that. Uh, this is called Love and the Goddess. Romantic love and the image of woman as goddess, virgin, and the mother earth. And again, a fitting uh, theme for tonight as I do this sort of uh, Mother's Day special edition of Radio Orbit. And we'll get right to it here. I'll be back uh, with you in uh, just a little while uh, to uh, say hello. But in the meantime, enjoy this. Uh, from 15 or 16 years ago, Bill Moyers, Joseph Campbell, Love and the Goddess. Radio Orbit, KOPN. The phone number here is 573-874-5676 or 1-800-895-5676. Give me a call. Let me know what you think. Thanks. Parabola, the magazine of myth and tradition in association with Mystic Fire Video, present Joseph Campbell and the Power of Myth with Bill Moyers. Program 5, Love and the Goddess. Apprezzi con So through the eyes love attains the heart. For the eyes are the scouts of the heart. And the eyes go reconnoitering for what it would please the heart to possess. And when they are in full accord and firm, all three in one resolve, at that time perfect love is born from what the eyes have made welcome to the heart. For as all true loves know, love is perfect kindness. Which is born, there is no doubt from the heart and the eyes. Joseph Campbell and the Power of Myth with Bill Moyers. Love and the Goddess.
One of Joseph Campbell's most eloquent essays was called simply The Mythology of Love. What a wonderful theme, he wrote, and what a wonderful world of myth one finds in celebration of this universal mystery. Stories of love fascinate the human race, and Campbell made their interpretation one of the great passions of his life as a scholar, teacher, and philosopher. Like a weaver of fine cloth, he spun the tales and legends of love into an amazing tapestry of the human psyche. He gathered his materials everywhere, from the erotic mysticism of India to the Old Testament Song of Songs, from the life of Christ and the teachings of the Ramakrishna to St. Paul and Bernard of Clairvaux and William Blake, Thomas Mann, and many others for whom love was the controlling principle of art. Campbell thought the greatest love stories were told in the Middle Ages, when noble and gentle hearts, as he called them, produced a romantic love that transcended lust. This love between individual men and women, a moor, was celebrated by wandering minstrels who sang of what the eyes have made welcome to the heart. It helped create a distinctive Western consciousness that exalted the individual experience of men and women over the authority and traditions of the church and state. Let's talk about love. Let's talk about love. Fine. But it's such a vast subject that if, in mythology, that if I had come to you and said, let's talk about love, but where should we begin? What would your answer have been? I think my answer would have been the troubadours in the 12th century. Let's begin there. Why the troubadours? Well, because they're the first ones in the West that really considered love in the sense that we think of it now as a person-to-person -person relationship. You're talking about romantic love? Yes. It is the seizure that comes in uh, recognizing as a as where your soul's counterpart in the other person, and that's what the um, troubadours stood for, and that has become the ideal in our lives today. What had it been before that? Well, the idea of love as eros, the god who excites you to sexual desire this is not the the person to person thing that they're falling in love in the way the troubadours understood it i have a definition for eros uh, the erotic biological urge as the zeal of the organs for each other <laughs> and uh, the personal factor doesn't matter where did eros come from well eros is cupid and in India, the god of love is Kama, and he's no Cupid. He's a big, vigorous youth with a uh, bow and a quiver of arrows, and the names of the arrows are such things as death-bringing uh, agony and open up, and uh, really, he just drives this thing into you so that it's a, it's a total physiological, psychological explosion that takes place. Uh, then the other love, uh, the Christian love of agape, spiritual love, love thy neighbor as thyself. Again, it doesn't matter who the person is. I mean, it's your neighbor. You must have that kind of love. But the kind of seizure uh, that comes from the meeting of the eyes, as they say in the Troubadour tradition, and uh, <clears throat> the purely personal person-to-person -person thing, as far as I know, it originates as, a, um, as an ideal to be lived for with the troubadours. You've said that what happened in the 12th and 13th centuries 
was one of the most important mutations of human feeling and spiritual consciousness that a new way of experiencing love came to expression yes and it was in opposition to that ecclesiastical despotism of the heart yes which required people particularly young girls barely out of adolescence to marry whomever the church or their parents wanted them to marry that's right and what had this done to the passion of the heart well the to say a word for the other before i do this the usual marriage in traditional cultures is uh, arranged for by the families it's not um, a person-to-person -person decision at all and this is true to this day in, uh, in many parts of the world this is not to say that in uh, arranged marriages of this kind there is no love there is a lot of love there's family love and uh, a rich love life on that um, level so in the middle ages of course that was the kind of marriage that was sanctified by the church and so the idea of, uh, of a real person-to-person -person marriage was very dangerous. It dangerous was, because it was heresy. It was not only heresy, it was adultery. And that was punishable by death. For instance, in the, in the Tristan romance, that, that's the crucial romance. Uh, of Tristan the, and Isolde? Yes. Isolde was engaged to marry King Mark. They had never seen each other. And uh, Tristan is sent over to fetch Isolde to Mark. And uh, Isolde's mother prepares a love potion so that uh, the two who are to be married will have real love for each other. And these two youngsters, they think the love potion is wine. And they drink it and then they're overtaken with this love. But Brangain, the nurse of Isolde, realized what had happened. She went to Tristan and said, You have drunk your death. And Tristan said, If by my death you mean this agony of love, that is my life. If by my death you mean the punishment that we are to suffer, if discovered, which is namely execution, I accept that. But if by my death you mean eternal punishment in the fires of hell in which these people believed, I accept that too. That was uh, quite a big stuff for a medieval Catholic because they believed in a literal hell. Well, these people did. Yes. So what's the significance of what he was saying? What he was saying is that this love is bigger even than death than pain, than anything. This is the affirmation of the pain of life in a, in a big way. And I would choose this pain for love now, even though it might mean everlasting pain and damnation in hell. That's right. And that was a marked change in how people... Well, that is an, uh, any life career that you choose in following your bliss should be chosen with that sense. Nobody can frighten me off from this thing. This is sort of the beginning of uh, the romantic idea of the Western individual taking matters into his or her own hands. Well, absolutely. I mean, you can see there are examples in Oriental uh, stories of this kind of thing, but it did not become a social system. It has now become the, the ideal, at any rate, of, of love in the Western world. Love from one's own experience. You're right.
it's a very mysterious thing, uh, that electric thing that happens. And then the, the agony can, that can follow, which is that which uh, the troubadours celebrate, you know, the agony of the love, the sickness that the doctors cannot cure, the wounds that can be healed only by the weapon that delivered the wound. Meaning? Well, the wound is the wound of my passion and agony of love for this creature. And the only one who can heal me is the one who delivered the blow, you know. So we often hurt most of the person we love and heal the hurt by the love that hurt. <laughs> That's something like that. That's the paradox of the job. What did you mean, Joe, when you said that the triumph of Tristan's view of love and vision of love this beginning of romantic love in the West was libido over credo. Well, the credo, I believe, and I believe not only in the laws, but I believe that these laws were instituted by God, and uh, there's no arguing with God. I mean, these laws are just a uh, heavy weight on me, and uh, disobeying those is sin, and uh, it has to do with my eternal character. And libido? <clears throat> libido is the impulse to life. Comes from where? Comes from the, the heart. And the heart is what? The heart is the organ of opening up to somebody else. That's the human quality as opposed to the animal qualities, which have to do with uh, primarily with self-interest. Opening up to that which is other is uh, the opening of the heart. And that's as the troubadours saw it. It is the opening of the heart. I can certainly understand, though, why the church was threatened by this, because how can you have a church if everyone's libido is is her own God? Why not? Why can't the church handle that? If you can, if you can uh, 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 sanctify a marriage that has been arranged, why can't you sanctify a marriage where two people have joined each other? So the courage to love became the courage to affirm against tradition whatever knowledge stands confirmed in one's own experience. Yeah. Why was that important in the evolution of the West? Well, it was important in that it gives the West uh, this accent, as I've been saying, on the individual. That he should have faith in his experience and not simply mouth terms that have come to him from other mouths. I think that's the great thing in the West. The validity of the individual's uh, experience of what humanity is, what life is, what values are against the monolithic system. Was there some of this uh, in the legend of the Holy Grail? Yes. Wolfram has a very interesting statement about the origin of the Grail. He says... The grail was brought from heaven by the neutral angels. There was the war in heaven between God and Lucifer and the angelic hosts that sided one group with Lucifer and the other with God. Pair of opposites, good and evil, God and Satan. The grail was brought down through the middle, the way of the middle, by the neutral angels. What is the grail representing then? Well, the grail becomes the, what we call it, 
that which is attained and realized by people who have lived their own lives. So the story, very briefly, is of this, uh, I'm, I'm giving it now as Wolfram gives it, but this is just uh, one version. Uh, the Grail King was a lovely young man, but he had not earned that position. And uh, the Grail represents the fulfillment of the highest spiritual uh, potentialities of the, of the human consciousness. And uh, he was a, a, a lovely young man, and he rode forth from his castle uh, with the war cry, Amor. And uh, as he's riding forth, uh, a uh, Muslim, a uh, pagan warrior, a Mohammedan warrior, comes out of the woods at night. And they both level their lances at each other. They drive at each other. And the lance of the Grail King kills the Mohammedan, but the Mohammedan's lance castrates the Grail King. What that means is that the Christian separation of matter and spirit, of, uh, of the dynamism of life and the spiritual, natural grace and supernatural grace has really castrated nature. And uh, the European mind, the European life has been, as it were, uh, emasculated by this. The, the true spirituality which would have come from this has been killed. And then, what did the pagan represent? He was a person from the suburbs of Eden. He was regarded as a nature man. And on the head of his lance was written the word grail. That is to say, nature intends the grail. Spiritual life is the bouquet of natural life, not a supernatural thing imposed upon it. And so, the impulses of nature are what give authenticity to life, not obeying rules come from a supernatural authority. That's the sense of the grail. And the grail that these romantic legends were searching for is the union, once again, of what had been divided? The peace that comes from joining? The, the grail becomes symbolic of an authentic life that has lived in terms of its own uh, volition, in terms of its own impulse system, which carries it between the pairs of opposites of good and evil, light and dark. Wolfram starts his epic with a short poem saying, every act has both good and evil results. Every act in life yields pairs of opposites in its results. The best we can do is lean toward the light. That is, they intend the light. And what the light is, is that of the harmonious relationships that come from compassion with suffering, understanding of the other person. This is what the Grail's about. When we say God is love, does that have anything to do with romantic love? Does mythology ever link romantic love and God? Well, that's what it did do. Uh, love was a divine visitation, and that's why it was superior to marriage. That was the troubadour idea. If God is love, well, then love is God. Okay. There's that wonderful passage in Corinthians by Paul where he says, Love beareth all things, endureth all things. Well, that's the same business. Love knows no pain. 
And yet, one of my favorite stories of mythology is out of Persia, where there's the idea that Lucifer was condemned to hell because he loved God so much. Yeah, that's a basic Muslim idea uh, about uh, Iblis, that's the Muslim name for Satan, uh, being the, like God's greatest lover. Why was Satan thrown into hell? Well, the standard story is that when God created the angels, he told them to bow to none but himself. Then he created man, whom he regarded as a higher form than the angels, and he asked the angels then to serve man. And Satan would not bow to man. Now, this is interpreted in the Christian tradition, as I recall from my boyhood instruction, as being the uh, egotism of Satan. He would not bow to man. Mm -hmm. But in this view, he could not bow to man because of his love for God. He could bow only to God. And then God says, get out of my sight. Now, the worst of the pains of hell, insofar as uh, hell has been described, is the absence of the beloved, which is God. So how does Iblis sustain the situation in hell? By the memory of the echo of God's voice when God said, go to hell. And uh, I think that's a great sign of love, do you see? Well, it's certainly true in life that uh, the greatest hell one can know is to be separated from the one you love. Yeah. That's why I've liked the, the Persian myth for so long. Satan is God's lover. Yeah. And he has separated from God and that's the real pain of Satan. You once took the saying of Jesus, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. You once took that to be the highest, the noblest, the boldest of the Christian teachings. Do you still feel that way? Well, I, I think the main teaching of Christianity is love your enemies. Hard to do. I know. Well, that's it. When, when Peter drew his sword and cut off the, uh, the servant's ear there in the Gethsemane affair, and uh, Jesus says, put up your sword, Peter, and put the ear back on. Peter has been drawing his sword ever since. And uh, one can speak about the Petrine or Christian Christianity in that sense. And uh, I would say that the, the main doctrine of Christianity is the doctrine of agape, of, of a true love for he who is your, him who is your enemy. How does one love one's enemy? without condoning what the enemy does, accepting his aggression. Well, I'll tell you how to do that. Do not pluck the moat from your enemy's eye, but pluck the beam from your own, do you know? Now, I have a friend whom I met by chance, a young Buddhist monk from Tibet. You know, in 1959, the communists crashed down and bombed the uh, palace of the Dalai Lama, bombarded Lhasa and people murdered and all that kind of thing. And the escape, he escaped at the time of the Dalai Lama. And uh, 
those monasteries, I mean, there were monasteries with 5,000 monks, 6,000 monks, all wiped out, tortured, and everything else. I haven't heard one word of incrimination of the Chinese from that young man. There is absolutely no condemnation of the Chinese here. And you hear this from the uh, Dalai Lama himself. Uh, you will not hear a word of condemnation. This recognition of the way of life through which that vitality of the spirit is moving in its own way. I mean, these men are sufferers of terrific violence. And um, there's no animosity. I learned religion from that. Do most of the stories of mythology from whatever culture say that suffering is intrinsically a part of life and that there's no way around it? I think I'd be willing to say that they, uh, they do. I, I can't think of anything now that says uh, if you're going to live, uh, you won't suffer. It'll tell you how to understand and bear and interpret suffering. That it will do. And when the Buddha says there is escape from suffering, the escape from sorrow is nirvana. Nirvana is a psychological position where you are untouched by desire and fear. But is that realistic? Does that happen? Yes, certainly. And your life becomes what? Harmonious, well-centered, and affirmative of, of life. Even with suffering? Exactly. There's a passage in Paul's uh, epistle to the Philippians, isn't there? Be as Christ, for Christ did not think Godhood something to be hung on to, to be clung to, but let go and came down and took life in the form of a servant, a servant even unto death. Let's say, come in and accept the suffering and, and, and uh, affirm it. So you would agree with Abelard in the 12th century who, who said that Jesus' death on the cross was not as ransom paid, as a penalty applied, but it was an act of at-one-ment, atonement, at one with the race. That's the most sophisticated interpretation of why Christ had to be crucified. Abelard's idea was that this, oh, this is connected with the Grail King and everything else, that the coming and of Christ to be crucified and illustrating thus the suffering of life removes man's mind from commitment to the things of this world in compassion. It's in compassion with Christ that we turn to Christ. And so the injured one becomes the Savior. It is the suffering that evokes the humanity of the, of the human heart. So you would agree with Havilard that mankind yearning for God and God yearning for mankind in compassion met at that cross. Yes, and by contemplating the cross, you are contemplating the, the true mystery of, of life. And that love for this experience no matter how horrific the experience, they, they love for it. So there's joy and pain in love. Yeah, there is. I mean, love, you might say, is the burning point of life. And since all life is sorrowful, so is love.
and and the, the stronger the love, the the, the more the that pain. But love bears all things. Love itself is a pain, you might say, that uh, is the pain of being truly alive. As Joseph Campbell pursued his quest across Europe for the stories of love and chivalry, he paused often to visit the great cathedrals. They, too, reflected the glory of love, the love of Mary, Mother of God. Reverence for the power of the female is another grand theme in ancient mythology. In the primitive planning cultures, women contributed importantly to the economic life of the community by participating in the growing and reaping of crops. And as the mother and nourisher of life, she was thought to assist the earth symbolically in its fertility. In fact, some believe there was even a golden age of the goddess until she was driven from the imagination by the emergence of patriarchal authority. Of late, however, scientists have resurrected the name of an ancient goddess, Gaia, to express the idea of Earth as a living body on which we depend for life. In the last half of this conversation with Joseph Campbell, he takes us back to the time when the love of God meant the love for Mother Goddess, and he unites these themes in one image, the virgin birth, which to him represents the birth of spirit from matter, the birth of compassion in the heart. The Lord's Prayer begins, Our Father, which art in heaven. Yeah. Could it have begun, Our Mother? This is a metaphorical image. This is a symbolic image. And to make the point that it's not your father, your physical father, we have Our Father who art in heaven. But heaven again is a symbolic idea. Where it would heaven be? It is no place. All of the references of uh, religious and mythological images are to planes of consciousness or fields of experience potentially in the human spirit. And these are to evoke uh, attitudes and experiences that are appropriate to a meditation on the mystery of the source of your own being, I would say. So there have been systems of religion where the mother is the prime parent, the source, and she's really a more um, immediate parent than the father because one is born from the mother yeah. and then the first experience of any infant is the mother. So that the image of woman is the image of the world. You might say that mythology is simply a translation of the world into a mother image. We talk of Mother Earth and so forth. But what happened along the way, Joe, to this reverence that in primitive societies was directed toward the goddess figure, the great goddess, the Mother Earth? What happened to that? That comes in primarily with agriculture and the agricultural societies. Fertility and all of that? It has to do with the Earth, the, the human woman does give birth as the earth gives birth to the, uh, the plants. She gives nourishment as the plants do. So woman magic and earth magic are the same. They are related. And uh, the personification then of this energy which gives birth to forms and nourishes forms is properly female. And so, 
it is in the agricultural world of ancient uh, Mesopotamia, the Egyptian Nile, but also in the earlier planting culture systems that the, uh, the goddess is the mythic form that is dominant. Because of this obvious perception of creation issue. That's right. And when you have a goddess as the creator, it's her own very body that is the universe. She is identical with the universe. And in Egypt, uh, you have the, the mother heavens, Newt, the goddess Newt, who represents the whole heavenly sphere. I was really taken when we went to Egypt upon first seeing the figure of Newt in the ceiling of one of those temples. Yes, I know the temple. It's overwhelming. Yes. There's one scene of her swallowing the sun. The idea is that uh, she swallows the sun in the west and gives birth to the sun in the east and it passes through her body at night. And, uh, and so she is the heavens. So it would be natural for people trying to explain the wonders of the universe to look to the female figure as the explanation for what they saw in their own lives. Not only that, but then when you move to a philosophical point of view, the female represents what uh, in the Kantian terminology we call the forms of sensibility. The female represents time and space itself. She is time and space. And the mystery beyond her is beyond pairs of opposites. So it isn't male and it isn't female. It neither is nor isn't. But everything is within her so that the gods are her children. Everything you can think of, everything you can see, is the uh, production of the goddess. Oh, this is a wonderful story. The Vedic gods are together and they see a strange sort of amorphous thing down the way, like a kind of smoky fog. And they say, what's that? I don't know what it is. And uh, Agni, the god of fire, says, uh, I'll go find out who that is. So he goes up to this smoky thing and he says, who are you? And from the smoky thing, the voice says, who are you? And he says, I'm Agni, I'm the Lord of Fire, I can burn anything. And out of the fog there comes a piece of straw, it falls on the ground. It says, let's see you burn that. He can't burn it. He goes back, he says, this is strange. Well, Vayu, the Lord of Wind, says, I'll try. So he goes, and the same thing, I can blow anything around. Throws it down, let's see you blow that, but he can't, it goes back. Then a woman arrives, a beautiful, mysterious, mystic woman. And she instructs the gods and tells them who that is. That is the ultimate mystery of being from which you, boys, have received your strength. And he can turn it on or off for you, you know. And there she comes as the one who illuminates the gods themselves concerning the ultimate ground of their own being. It's the female wisdom. It's the female as the giver of forms. Uh, she is the one who gave the forms, and she knows where they came from. I wonder what it would have meant to us if somewhere along the way we had begun the prayer, 
our mother instead of our father? What psychological difference would it have made? Well, it makes a psychological difference in the, in the character of the cultures. You have the basic birth of civilization in the Near East with the great river valleys then as the, the main source areas, the Nile, the Tigris-Euphrates, and then over in India, the Indus Valley, and later the Ganges. This is the world of the goddess. All these rivers have goddess names, finally. Then there come the invasions. Uh, these fighting people are herding people. The Semites are herders of goats and sheep, and the Indo-Europeans of cattle. They were formerly the hunters. They translate a hunting mythology into a herding mythology, but it's animal-oriented. And when you have hunters, you have killers. Uh, and when you have herders, you have killers, because they're always in movement, nomadic, coming into conflict with other people, and they have to conquer the area they move into. This comes into the Near East, and this brings in the warrior gods, like Zeus, like Yahweh. The sword and death instead of fertility. Right. Particularly the Hebrews. They really wipe out the goddess. Uh, the term for the goddess, the Canaanite goddess that's used in the uh, Old Testament is the abomination. And uh, so many of the Hebrew kings are condemned in the uh, Old Testament for having worshipped on the mountaintops. Mm -hmm. That's the goddess. And uh, there was a very strong accent against the goddess in the Hebrew, which you do not find in the Indo-European. There you have Zeus marrying the goddess, yeah. and, and then the two play together. I think it's an extreme case that we have in the Bible. And our own Western uh, subjugation of the female is really, I think, a function of, of biblical thinking. Because when you substitute the, f the male for the female, you get a s different psychology, a different cultural well, bias. Particularly if you cut the female out and, and don't have any... I mean, if, if the male is on top like this, uh, and the female is the subordinate all the way. You have a totally different system from that when the two are facing each other. And it's permissible in your culture to do what your gods do, so you just... Well, that's exactly it. So I would see uh, three uh, situations here. One, the early one of the sheer goddess when the male is hardly a, a significant uh, divinity. You see, she is the total thing. And then this other one of the Hebrew of the goddess, the male, the total thing. In fact, he takes over her role. Uh, and, and finally, then, the, the classical one where the two are in interaction. There are women today who say that the spirit of the goddess has been in exile for 5,000 years. Since the well, that not, that, you can't put it that far back, 5,000 years. Uh, she was a very potent figure in Hellenistic times in the Mediterranean. 
and uh, she came back uh, with the Virgin in the Roman Catholic tradition. I mean, you don't have a tradition with the goddess celebrated any more beautifully and marvelously than in the 12th and 13th century French cathedrals, every one of which is called Notre Dame. What about the virgin birth? Suddenly the goddess reappears in the form of the chaste and pure vessel chosen for God's action. Well, in the history of Western religions, this is an extremely interesting development. The virgin birth comes in by way of the Greek tradition. When you read your four Gospels, the only one with the virgin birth in it is the Gospel according to Luke, and Luke was a Greek. And there was in the Greek tradition uh, images, legends, myths of virgin births? All of them. I mean, the Lita and the Swan and Persephone and the Serpent and this one and that one and the other one. The virgin birth is, uh, is represented throughout. This was not a new idea then in Bethlehem? And... No. It, uh, what is the meaning of the virgin birth? In India, there's this... Uh, the system of the Kundalini, as it's called, the idea of the, uh, the centers, psychological centers up the spine. And they represent the psychological planes of concern and consciousness and action. The first is at the rectum, and this is that of alimentation. The serpent represents this, you know, a traveling esophagus going along, just eating, 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 eating. And all of us, are pro we wouldn't be here if we weren't eating. And then the second, the second center is at the sex organ center, and that's the urge to procreation. The third center is, called, is at the navel, uh, and uh, this is where you eat and want to consume. And uh, it's not the alimentary eating, it's the mastering and smashing and uh, trashing of others. You see, this is the aggressive mood. Now, the first is uh, uh, an animal instinct. The second is an animal instinct. The third is an animal instinct. And these three centers are located in the, in the pelvic basin, you see. Mm -hmm. The next one is at the level of the heart and this is the opening of compassion and there you move out of the field of animal action into a field that is properly human and spiritual now in each of these centers there is a symbolic form at the base the first one there is the form of the lingam and yoni the male and female organs in conjunction at the heart chakra, there is again the male and female organs in conjunction, but in gold. This is the virgin birth. It's the birth of spiritual man out of the animal man. Do you understand? That? And it happens when you are awakened at the level of the heart to compassion and suffering with the other person. That's the beginning of humanity. And the meditations of religion properly are on that level, the heart level. You say it's the beginning of humanity, but in, in these stories, that's the moment when gods are born. The virgin birth. It's a god who emerges from that yeah. chemistry. And you know who that god is? It's you. 
All of the symbols in mythology refer to you. You can get stuck out there and think it's all out there. And so you're thinking of Jesus and, and uh, all the sentiments about how he suffered and all. What that suffering is, is what ought to be going on in you. Have you been reborn? Have you died to your animal nature and come to life as a, as a human uh, incarnation? Why is it significant that this is of a virgin? Well, it is that uh, the begetter is the spirit. It is a spiritual birth. The virgin conceived of the word but through the ear. The word came like a shaft of light. Yes. And now the Buddha was born from his mother's side at the level of the heart chakra. That's a symbolic birth. He wasn't born uh, from his mother's side, but symbolically he was. But the Christ came the way you and I come. Yes, but of a virgin. Which is a power greater than... And then, according to Roman Catholic doctrine, her virginity was restored. So, nothing happened physically, you might say. It's not a physical birth. It's symbolic of a spiritual transformation. That's what the virgin birth's about. And so, deities are born that way who represent... Beings who act in terms of compassion and not in terms of the lower three centers. If you go back into antiquity, do you find images of the Madonna as the mother of the Savior child? Well, what you have as the model for the Madonna actually is Isis with uh, the, her child Horus at her breast. This was the actual model for the Madonna symbol. Isis? Tell me that story. This is a, a prime myth in, the, uh, in, the, in this um, period of the goddess as the redeemer, the one who goes in quest of the lost spouse or lover, and uh, through her loyalty and uh, descent into the realm of death, recovers him. Isis and her husband Osiris were twins who were born of the goddess Nut. And uh, their younger uh, relatives were Set and Nephthys, who were also twins born from Nut. Set planned to kill his brother Osiris. And he took Osiris's measurements secretly and had a wonderful sarcophagus built that would exactly fit Osiris. So there was a hilarious party in progress one time among the gods, and Set trots in this sarcophagus, and he says, anyone whom this perfectly fits uh, can have it as his sarcophagus. And everybody at the party tried. And when Osiris got in, of course, he perfectly fit. Just at that time, 72 accomplices come rushing out, and they clap the lid on and strap it together and throw it in the Nile. Now, this is the death of the god. Whenever you have a death of an incarnation, a god like this, you're going to have a resurrection. You can wait for that. So he goes floating down the Nile, and... Um, is washed ashore in Syria and a beautiful tree grows up and incorporates the sarcophagus in its own trunk so this is this wonderful tree with glorious aroma 
And the uh, local king has just had uh, a son born to him. And he is also at the same time going to build a palace. The aroma of this tree is so wonderful. He cuts it down and brings it in to be a central pillar in the main room of the palace. Poor little Isis, whose husband has been thrown into the Nile, starts this wonderful quest for Osiris. So she comes to the place where the palace is and uh, learns of the uh, wonderful aroma and she suspects this is Osiris and uh, she gets a job as nurse to the just-born little child. Well, she lets the child nurse from her finger and she loves the little child and she decides to give it immortality. So she does this by placing him in the um, fireplace in the fire to burn away gradually his uh, mortal body. But at being a goddess, she could keep that from killing him, you understand? And when that would happen, she would convert herself into a swallow and fly mournfully around the pillar where her husband is. Well, one evening, the child's mother came into this room while this scene was in progress, so her child in the fireplace let out a scream, and uh, that broke the spell, and they had to rescue the child. Uh, from incineration. Meanwhile, the swallow had turned into this gorgeous nurse, Isis. And the nurse gave an explanation of the situation. And she said, um, by the way, uh, it's my husband that's in that, that pillar there. And I'd be grateful if you could uh, just let me take it home. So the king came in and he said, certainly. So he removes the pillar. Uh, gives it to Isis and is put on a barge. So on the way back to the Nile, she removes the lid, the cover of the sarcophagus, and lies on top of her dead spouse and conceives of her dead spouse. This is an image that occurs in Egyptian art all the time. Out of death comes life and all of this kind of business. And when they land, she, in the papyrus swamp, gives birth to her child Horus with the dead Osiris beside her. This is the motif for the, the Madonna, actually. It becomes the Madonna. In Egyptian uh, symbology, Isis represents the throne. The pharaoh sits on the throne of Isis mm. as the child sits on the mother lap. And when you look in the Cathedral of Chartres in the West Portal, you will see the Madonna as the throne with the little child Jesus as the world emperor on her lap. That is the same image that's come over. And you say the Christian fathers took this image? Definitely, and they really say so. Uh, you read the second uh, letter of Peter, and he says, Those forms which were merely mythological forms in the past are now incarnate and actual in our Savior. They, they were, it was a mythology of the Savior, the dead and resurrected God. And it's associated with the moon, which dies and is resurrected every, every month. And you have the three nights dark, and you have Christ three nights in the tomb, and three days in the tomb, and all this kind of thing. It's an intentional uh, saying, that which was merely talked about is now fact. 
Uh, no one knows what the date of Christmas ought to be, but it's put on the date of the summer of the winter solstice, when the nights begin to be shorter and the days longer, the birth of light. And so there is an idea of uh, death to the past and birth to the future in our lives and in our thinking all the time. Death to the animal nature, birth to the spiritual, and these symbols are talking about it one way or another. So when the count... And the goddess is the one who brings it about. The second birth is through the second mother. Notre Dame de Paris, Notre Dame de Chartres, our mother church. We are reborn by entering and leaving a church. It doesn't mean physically, it means... Spiritually. That there's a power that's unique to the feminine principle. It can be put that way. You can, it's not necessarily unique to her. You can have a rebirth through the, through the male also. But using this system of symbols, right. uh, the woman becomes the regenerator. There's that wonderful saying uh, in the New Testament of Jesus, in Jesus there is no male or female. In, in the ultimate sense of things, there is neither. That's, it would have to be. I mean, if Jesus represents the, the uh, source of our being, we are all, as it were, thoughts in the mind of Jesus. He is the word that has become flesh in us, too. You and I would possess characteristics that are both male and female. Well, actually, the body does. But sometime in the fetal period, the, it becomes apparent that this is going to be male and this is going to be female. Meanwhile, it's a kind of neutral body with the potentialities for either inflection. So all through life, we are honoring or suppressing one or the other. And in that yin-yang figure from uh, China, you know, in the dark fish or whatever you want to call it, there's a light spot, and in the light one, there's a dark spot. That's how they can relate. You couldn't relate at all to something that, uh, of which you did not participate, into which you did not participate at all. That's why the idea of God as the absolute other is a, a, a ridiculous idea. There could be no relationship to that which is absolute other. Uh, the question arises, in discussing the male-female principle, the virgin birth, the spiritual power that gives us the second birth. The wise people of all time have said that we can live the good life if we learn, in fact, to live spiritually. But how does one learn to live spiritually when one is of the flesh? Remember Paul said the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. How do we learn to live spiritually? Well, that was the, in ancient times and in primitive times, uh, the business of the teacher. He was to give you the clues to a spiritual life. That was what the priest was for. Also, that was what the ritual was for. A ritual can be defined as an enactment of a myth. By participating in a, in a good, sound ritual, you are actually experiencing a mythological uh, life. And uh, it's out of that that one can learn to live spiritually. These stories of mythology actually point the way to the spiritual life. Yes, you've got to have a clue. Uh, you've got to have a road map 
of some kind, and these are all around us. They're, they're, they're here. And the roadmap to which the goddess stories are, are pointing is the map of, of elevating the spiritual to an equality with the physical so that you live in union with those two. Yes, there you, you come to the real sanctity of the earth itself because that is the body of the goddess. When Yahweh creates, he creates of the earth and breathes his life into it. He's not there. She's there. Your body is her body. And there's that kind of identity. Well, that's why I'm not so sure that the future of the race and the salvation of the journey is in space. I think it is well right here on Earth, in the body, in the womb of all of our being. Well, it certainly is. I mean, when you go out into space, what you're carrying is your body. And if that hasn't been transformed, space won't transform it for you. But thinking about space may help you to realize something. You certainly thought about space in this wonderful passage. You're describing a page out of the National Geographic Atlas of the World, but you oh, read yeah. this and something happened to you. What these pages opened to me was the vision of a universe of unimaginable magnitude and inconceivable violence. Billions upon billions, literally, of roaring thermonuclear furnaces scattering from each other each thermonuclear furnace being a star, and our sun among them. Many of them actually blowing themselves to pieces, littering the outermost reaches of space with dust and gas, out of which new stars with circling planets are being born right now. And then from still more remote distances beyond all these, there come murmurs, microwaves, which are echoes of the greatest cataclysmic explosion of all, namely the Big Bang of creation which according to recent reckonings must have occurred some 18 billion years ago. That's where we are, kiddo. And uh, to realize that, you realize how really important you are, you know. One little micro bit in this great magnitude. And then out of that must come the experience that you and that are in some sense one, and uh, you partake of all of that. And it begins here. It begins here. of Apostrophe S Productions in association with Alvin H. Perlmutter Incorporated and Public Affairs Television Incorporated. Copyright 1988. Executive producers are Joan Connor and Alvin H. Perlmutter. Producer is Catherine Taggi. Associate producer is Vera Aronow. Series consultant, Betty Sue Flowers. Radio post-production... All right, I think we can talk over that for a little while. It's only 16 years old. I don't think they'll get too mad at me for talking over their credits at the end. Uh, this is Mike Hagan, and you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN 89.5 FM, Mid-Missouri's source of in-depth news, diverse talk, and music of the world. It's more than radio, community radio, listener-sponsored, listener-supported, community radio serving Columbia and all points around 
in Missouri. All right. Uh, this is uh, the last hour of Radio Orbit for Monday, May 9th. And now, of course, it is uh, Tuesday, the 10th of May. And uh, we're going to finish things up here with, I'm not sure what exactly, but I uh, hope you enjoyed that there. That was uh, uh, the fifth uh, hour of a six-hour installment or a six-hour uh, collection of interviews between Bill Moyers and Joseph Campbell from 1987 and 1988 recorded at George Lucas's Skywalker Ranch out in California and some wonderful stuff uh, uh, from uh, Mr. Campbell. Died in 1988, uh, but... Um, still uh, making great points and very valid stuff uh, to this day. So hope you all enjoyed that. And over the uh, over the course of this show, we will probably um, probably do more uh, of Joseph Campbell now and again. And uh, if you like it, let me know. You can give me a call here at the studio, 573-874-5676, I'm going to do a couple of things uh, after I play some music here, but then, um, I don't know, I might open the phones up uh, in a little while here. Seems kind of quiet tonight, though, so uh, we'll see how that goes. Uh, Either way, we'll uh, finish things up with something interesting. In the meantime, uh, thanks for listening to that Joseph Campbell piece. I hope you enjoyed it. And we'll keep things going here with a little music. This is the Verve Pipe with Reverend Girl on Radio Orbit KOPN.
Reverend Girl from the Verve Pipe from Villains. And this is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN 89.5 FM. And uh, I don't know what we're going to do here. Let's see. I have a couple interesting stories, uh, a couple of fun ones here. One that reminded me of a piece that I read. Uh, I've been doing a lot of reading tonight, so I guess I'll just continue that. Uh, it doesn't seem like uh, the... Uh, audience out there is too talkative tonight anyway. So anyway, I'm going to read a quick story here that I found in, I don't know, some newspaper today. And then I'm going to read another piece uh, that is uh, something from my own collection uh, that uh, sort of shows the opposite side of the piece that I'm going to read first. All right, so uh, let's start start upon this here real fast. The uh, article starts like this. It says, Once upon a time, there was a farm where fairies lived. All right. Some people still obviously believe in fairies, as the Warren family at Cottingley near Bingley find their amusement. They often get uninvited visitors knocking on the farmhouse door, inquiring where they can find the elusive, magical-winged creatures. It's not really surprising as the village is world-renowned for the fairy photographs brought to light just before the end of the First World War. A steady stream of visitors drift in and out of the village, and some of them end up in the farmyard at the Marchcoat Farm, the home of George Warren and his wife Jean, who farm in partnership with their son Andrew. This is in the United Kingdom, by the way. The Cottingley Fairies hoax was perpetrated in 1917 by two young girls, Elsie Wright, 15 and her cousin Frances Griffiths, 10. In order to prove that, the, that uh, fairies really did exist, Elsie took a picture showing Frances with a troop of spirits dancing, uh, of sprites dancing in front of her. Sherlock Holmes author Arthur Conan Doyle was fascinated by the fairies, and when the first of his articles on the subject was published in the Strand magazine in December 1920, the girls had little option but to stick to their story. They revealed publicly in 1983, however, that the fairies were paper cutouts supported by hat pins. Even in this day and age, the Warren family find it difficult to, tear their, to tell their uninvited guests that it was all a deceptive trick. On a more serious note, George Warren has just been elected president of the Airedale Agricultural Society, organizers of Bingley Show to be held this year on August 14th in its original setting uh, of the town's Myrtle Park. All right, so there's a story about fairies. And when we come back, I'll read you another story about fairies. In the meantime, we'll listen to one more piece of music here. Speaking of fairies, this is a cloak of elven kind. Marcy Playground, KOPN, Radio Orbit. Back in a few. Before a boy and I know 
of Elventine. That's Marcy Playground on Radio Orbit. And this is Mike Hagan. Hello again to you. We've got about 45 minutes left of the show here. And uh, I just read a story about uh, a couple of girls from the countryside in England who perpetrated a hoax about fairies back in 1917 and didn't even reveal until 1983 uh, that it was sort of a hoax. Uh, but uh, as I said before, there's two sides to all stories and I'm going to read a piece here that I read uh, many months ago probably about seven or eight months ago when I was doing the show on Saturday nights Sunday mornings from 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. Uh, so uh, probably nobody heard it so I'm going to read it again now and um, and I hope you enjoy it this is uh, my guy's name is Buck Young and it's entitled, An Historical Overview of the Whereabouts of Gnomes and Elves, Fawns, Fairies, Goblins, Ogres, Trolls, Bogies, Nymphs, Sprites, Dryads, Past and Present. A long, long time ago the earth belonged to the creatures of the wood. By creatures of the wood I mean gnomes, elves, fairies, etc. They tended it, they took care of it, they played in it, danced and sang in it, they cared for wounded animals worked out disputes between species, sat on mushrooms discussing matters of import and drinking Labrador tea. They rode down streams on leaves and bark parachuted from trees on dandelion seeds. This was the world into which mankind was born. These early days when man was but a newly arrived dinner guest who hadn't yet taken over the house are fairly well documented in the literature and folklore of the world, so there's no need to go into it here. What I am interested in, and what I am asking you to be interested in, is the question, 
Where did all the gnomes, elves, fairies, etc. go? The friction between man and the wood creatures began with the discovery of agriculture. With this discovery, civilization arose and spread. The forests were cleared to provide wood for shelter and fields for pastures and crops. Mankind had set up camp. No longer just a visitor in someone else's world, he pushed the wild back from his newly built doorstep. At first, this wasn't a problem. There weren't that many people, and everyone else felt that it was only fair to allot them their own half-acre to do with as they wished. Some of them even decided to help out. Gnomes moved into the barn houses and helped with the gardening chores. The devic spirits of the vegetables helped humans better organize their crops and plan rotation, taught them the correlation between planetary and lunar cycles and the agricultural year. They taught them to plant radishes when the moon is in Cancer, harvest when the moon is in Taurus. Many trolls felt that the heaping piles of manure were a change for the better and decided to stick around too. The rest of the wood creatures just backed off into the wood, occasionally playing tricks on the new settlers, like turning the milk sour, rearranging furniture, tipping cows, tickling people's faces in their sleep, and once in a while, even stealing babies and leaving bundles of wood in their place. But man's dominion spread, and the forest got smaller and smaller. Things got really crowded in the woods, and things were getting worse in civilization. Most farmers weren't listening to the devic spirits anymore. People found they could increase their output by disregarding the needs of the earth. They were raising productivity and killing the soil. Petrochemicals were just a step away. Most of the devic spirits and gnomes fled. The trolls stayed. Today they live mostly under bridges and in the shallow, mucky ditches beneath the metal grating on farm roads that cows are afraid to cross. Be sure to honk your horn before driving over one of these. A troll may be hanging from the grate, swinging over its living room, and as they are apt to do after rolling in the muck and manure, if you don't give a warning hawk, you may run over its fingers, and it's not a great idea to get either your name or your license plate on a troll's blank list. <laughs> now there's a little wild land left at all, and even that is shrinking at an unprecedented rate. There's simply not enough wild space for all the gnomes and elves, fawns, fairies, goblins, ogres, trolls, bogies, nymphs, sprites, and dryads. So where are they? Are they dead? No. Then where did they go? The answer may be a bit surprising. They didn't go anywhere. We did. Early humans had an intuitive knowledge of their role in nature, just as bears and raccoons and mice and every other critter does. They understood from the ways of the wild around them that nothing ever comes from nowhere and nothing ever just disappears. Things change form. Death is necessary for life to continue. They offered up their kills as sacrifices to the gods of nature. They offered praise, prayer, sacrifice, and songs to the spirit of the wild, to brother buffalo, to brother deer, to brother tree. Now we know that everything that ever existed continues to exist in one form or another. And as far as we can tell, they were more aware of it back then than we are now. So the sacrifice, song, and prayer did not ensure the immortality of the slaughtered, either in body or spirit. That was already taken care of. What it did ensure was the continuance of the connection between the spirit of the slaughterer and the spirit of the slaughtered. Killing is risky business. The membrane separating the internal from the external is not necessarily as thick or as clearly defined as we have come to believe. Every time we kill, we risk killing the reality of that thing inside ourselves as well as outside. We risk breaking the connection that lead in and out of the membrane. Taking a life to feed life requires a keen understanding of the natural law between give and take. 
when we lose that understanding, when we gave up the songs, the sacrifice, the prayers, we lost the connection. Saying grace is not enough. When we lose those connections, everything becomes dead. Fish, river, frogs, mice, even each other. There is no way they can reach inside us anymore. The five senses we are left with are not enough. We have given up those connections in exchange for the freedom to clear-cut forests with skitters, turn cows into milk machines, chickens into egg factories. We can experiment with animals, club seals, wear fur, exterminate entire species, not a twinge of guilt. The lines have been severed. And we are all under the impression that it is the forest, the creatures, the spirits of the wildlands that are disappearing from the universe and not us. This is not so. Thinking like that is like thinking that you stand on the end of a limb and if you saw that limb from the tree, that the tree will fall and you will remain standing. Bugs Bunny might be able to get away with that, but we cannot. It is we who have fallen away from the real world into a world where we may carry out our twisted sterile dreams without threatening the earth and its inhabitants. Ever wonder why the trees, stones, rivers, streams, birds, bears, frogs, and snakes no longer talk to us as they did in the early days of Native America, the Hindu, the Africans, in the Bible? It's because we're not around to talk to anymore. Every clear-cut, every vivisection, every mechanized slaughter of cow, pig, or chicken moves our dream world further and further from the tree, making a reunification which is still possible more and more difficult. Somewhere not so far from here, in the real world, the ancient forests are still standing. The buffalo roam the prairies, the sky is full of condor, the beer and the antelope play, the dodo birds still wander the sandy beaches bumping into things. Where there are still wild lands in our dream world, strong connections still exist. Bridges, tunnels, portals. Occasionally a traveler will get lost in the wilderness and find himself in the real world, returning the next day to find that a hundred years have passed or never returning at all. There are more ephemeral connections as well, brooks and waterfalls where you can still hear the voices from the other side if you listen carefully enough. When they sit by these waters, they hear loud clanking and screams. When they eat magic mushrooms, everything stops glowing and condors rise from the forest stand. Our children can see their world in their dreams. Their children see our world in their nightmares. And there is another connection. Sometimes agents from the other side infiltrate our world in an attempt to expedite reunification. Believe it or not, they miss us over there. Sometimes, more often than you might think, they send souls to our world to be born as human babies. There are quite a lot of them, actually. Gnomes, elves, fairies, sprites, etc., running around in human bodies, doing crazy things like writing on walls, working in co-ops, running inns in the mountains, talking to themselves in the streets, making pottery, practicing witchcraft. They are planting biodynamic gardens, sitting in the backyard naked, arguing with Satan. They are in asylums pumped full of Thorazine, in a classroom on Ritalin and Lithium. They live with Indians. They run recycling centers. They are starting revolutions, corrupting the young, inventing paranoid conspiracy theories, making up religions. They're directing movies, gobbling acid, drinking heavily and writing poetry. The transition from their world to ours is not an easy one. It is not easy on the soul, and much is lost. They may have no idea who or what they are at first. They may or may not find out. They will know they are not like other people. They will know that this world is not theirs. They will faintly remember something better, where things made sense and worked like they ought to, where love and magic had the power to heal. 
They will know what makes other people happy does not make them happy. And what makes them happy makes them happier than anyone else alive. They will see other things that people cannot see. They will hear things that others cannot hear. They will feel things that others cannot feel. They will know things that others do not know. They will laugh a great deal, or they will cry, or both. They will love humans individually, but have a hard time with humanity as a whole, and that will occasionally approach loathing. They will have a handful of very close friends, and they will often be very lonely. They will be unhappiest when forced to act like a human and do things that humans do, want what humans want, or when they are convinced that they actually are one. Things will not be easy for them. Because of their memories of the other side, the world will seem to them a wondrous calliope with just a few teeth missing on one of the cogs. Because of this tiny deficiency, the music is slightly off-key, the horses are crashing into one another, and the children are frightened, bruised, and crying. The solutions will seem obvious, but no one will listen. They will repeatedly be punished for shouting fire in a crowded theater when the buildings really are in flames but nobody else can see. They will get slapped on the wrist for pointing to the exit signs when everyone else is running around screaming and trampling one another. They will be zealous, fanatical, didactic in their beliefs. They will feel utterly confused. They will have ecstatic visions and babble incoherently. They will be extremely articulate. They are prone to long periods of silence. They have no idea how to say what they really mean. They spend a lot of time with children and animals. They will become drunkards and dope fiends, organic gardeners, soap makers, carpenters, madmen, magicians, jugglers, clowns, lunatic physicists, painters, scribblers, travelers, wanderers. They will dress in bright colors, frumpy sweaters, or all black. They will smoke too much, drink too much. They will eat only macrobiotic foods. They will develop addictions to Mountain Dew. They will often be accused of living in their own fantasy world. They will make great lovers. Yep, even the trolls. They will spend too much time either making love or thinking about it. They will speak to inanimate objects. They will have much brighter eyes than everyone else. They will expect their magic to work in this world and their love to heal. And they will be crushed by this world and they often won't expect it. It will come close to killing them. They will visit the places where the connections still exist. The waterfalls, the mountains, the oceans, and the forests. They will draw on all the power they have and sometimes, sometimes the magic will work, and everything will be wondrously easy. The teeth will grow back on the cog on the calliope, and the tune will write itself. The horses will bob gracefully up and down, around and around, and the children will giggle and sing with cotton candy stuck to their cheeks and noses. They will spend their days trying to reconnect a branch that, million, that millions are busy sawing away. Often it will be more than they can bear. While the rest of humanity is busy working on new and more efficient ways to lay waste to the earth, they will push at the push of a button. They are trying to save it a handful at a time. They will share a common conviction that they are the only sane individuals in a world gone mad. And they are right.
was laughing as she brushed my cheek. Why don't you call me angel maybe next week? From earth now, cross your heart and hope to die. There's a few there from uh, Richard Thompson from his uh, Capital Collection. That last one misunderstood. This is Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN. And uh, we got about 20 minutes to finish things up here. If anybody would like to give me a call, you're more than welcome to give me a buzz in the studio now. Uh, uh, get on the air if you're interested. Uh, 443-8255. Area code 573-573. Four four three eight two five five. Give me a call if you got any comments about the show tonight. 
Or uh, if you want, uh, maybe I'll give something away. Somebody call me and I'll give you something. Not sure what. Something cool, though. I got lots of cool stuff that I'm uh, going to be giving away for Pledge Drive uh, to next week. So um, I hope people uh, listen in for that. All right. Uh, in the meantime, let's see here. Um, here's a story that I wanted to read. It's entitled, Time Travelers Welcome at MIT. If John Teeter was at the Time Traveler Convention last Saturday night at MIT, he kept a low profile. Teeter, the, the notorious Internet discussion group member who claims to be from the year 2036, was among those invited to the convention where any time traveler would have been ushered in as an honored guest. Uh, now, if you're interested in John Teeter, or Titor, it's a T-I-T-O-R, um, you can go to johntitor.com, J-O-H-N-T-I-T-O-R.com. And I don't know whether I should plug his website or not, but it's a pretty interesting tale uh, nonetheless. So go make of it what you will. But uh, John Teeter, is, this is the guy they're referencing uh, in this story, but uh, he's been writing for a long time on the web that he's a time traveler. And uh, he's written some stuff now that supposedly, uh, uh, stuff that he wrote, a few years ago that supposedly has now been verified and things like that. So anyway, like I said, go make your own decision for that. At any rate, uh, we were hoping Teeter might show up, said MIT grad student Amal Daraj, convention organizer. Maybe he's going to make a grand entrance. The convention, which drew more than 400 people from our present time period, was held at MIT. Now, how do they know that? Uh, was held at MIT's storied East Campus dormitory. It featured an MIT rock band called the Hong Kong Regulars and hilarious lectures by MIT physics professors. The profs were treated like pop stars by attendees, fascinated by the possibility of traveling back in time. East Campus housemaster Julian Whitley, also a senior lecturer in Chinese at MIT, wore a name tag suggesting he had come back from 2121 to attend the convention. East Campus is known for taking a certain kind of zany approach to science, Wheatley said. Centrally located on the MIT campus, the East Campus dormitory uh, houses students with a reputation for turning out offbeat inventions such as person-sized hamster wheel and roller coasters built, for two by, built from two-by-fours. The East Campus dorm's peculiar reputation and the time traveler convention's far-out theme may explain why so many people made the effort to travel in driving rain to the two-hour event. A fan of the Cat and Girl Internet comic strip, which Doraj credits with giving him the, the idea for the convention, drove a band of jugglers up from Yale University campus in New Haven, Connecticut. Others took Greyhound or Chinatown buses from New York. We thought it would be cool to be visited by ourselves from the future, said Shauna Anthony, who traveled from New York with fellow New York School graduate uh, students, Sarah Moore. The MIT convention was the second public attempt this year to draw time travelers to a specific place at a more or less specific time. In March, an Australian group called the Destination Day Bureau made its own shout-out for time travelers in Perth, Australia, by placing a welcome plaque in a public square. MIT's Doraj gave interviews ahead of time to major media outlets to ensure that no one in the future missed his invitation to share chips and soda with people sporting tweed jackets and canes and those dressed up as their favorite science fiction or fantasy characters. But when attendees gathered outside for a raucous countdown at 10 p.m., nothing appeared on the makeshift landing pad and the coordinates Doraj had sent for the time travelers. 
Anyway, uh, it goes on and on and on a little bit, uh, sort of tongue-in-cheek, obviously. But this idea of time travel is uh, uh, is more real now than it's ever been before, at least in the scientific realm. It may have always been as real as uh, as it is, or possible, I guess. Um, but uh, the bottom line is that even in uh, scientific realms now, theoreticians and mathematicians are saying that these things are now probably possible. Do we have the means to do it yet? Hmm, who's to say? I don't know. You know, Nick Cook, when he was on the air um, a few months ago, talked about that project that the uh, 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 that was going on in Nazi Germany in the 40s, the Bell, die Glocke, uh, and that project uh, had something to do with manipulations of space-time, and that's in the in the documented historical record. So who knows what's really going on uh, at the upper echelons of technology? That's one of the things we talk about on this program a lot. The tech uh, uh, has been advancing at a tremendously fast rate for a long, long time now, and it's getting faster and faster as we go. Um, but uh, it turns out that oftentimes things are developed long before we in the public uh, realm know about them. So uh, regardless, there's a lot going on, and whether time travel is actually a possibility now with current technology or whether it's something that's coming in the future, it certainly is now a grounded in science, the possibility of it uh, being real. So, anyway, that's stuff that we'll uh, we'll talk about uh, on the on the uh, on the move in the future as we travel in time on this program. And uh, speaking of time, mine is about up, or I'm about uh, out of fuel. We got about ten more minutes here, and uh, Curtis will be coming in, and doing his boogeyman thing for you like he always does and I will um, uh, finish off things uh, with a plug for next week's show again because I really want to encourage people to listen to that show and more importantly uh, I want to encourage as I said at the beginning of the program I want to encourage uh, any female listeners uh, any women, girls, ladies uh, please uh, tell your friends to listen to the program and listen to the program yourself. And if you can't, if you're asleep, tape it and listen to it later. Um, my guest will be Dr. Barbara Tedlock. Dr. Tedlock is the uh, the chair of the anthropology department at the State University of New York in Buffalo. She's a Ph.D. anthropologist and an initiated Ujibwe shaman, a healer, and a woman of great, great knowledge and empathy and wisdom and uh, she's written a book called The Woman in the Shaman's Body uh, The Reinvigoration of the Feminine in Religion and Medicine and she will be with me live here in the studio she'll be here in Columbia and uh, she'll be here for a couple days and we're going to do the show live, and she'll be here with me. And uh, I don't know if we'll take any calls, but uh, it'll be a wonderful conversation. And again, uh, for the for the girls in particular, I hope you get a chance to listen, and I hope you tell all your girlfriends uh, to listen as well. And uh, that goes uh, for the guys, too. Not that the guys shouldn't listen to the show. You should. It's going to be great for all of us. But uh, but I really think it's one that will be a, uh, an eye-opener uh, and, uh, and an empowering uh, sort of uh, uh, talk uh, for the girls. 
All right, so that's coming next week, and after that, uh, I'm not sure. I think we got Nassim Haramain the week after that. Uh, lots of other things coming up, and we'll talk about it next week. But uh, come on back a week from now, six days, 21 hours, and we'll do Radio Orbit one more time next week live in studio with Dr. Barbara Tedlock, author of The Woman in the Shaman's Body. In the meantime, I've had a great time tonight, and I appreciate you all listening. Uh, this is Mike. And this is Radio Orbit. We'll finish things off with a little bit of uh, Neil Young. Thanks again. See you next week. Somewhere on